Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Good afternoon, everyone. It is Wednesday, July the 12th, 2023. It is currently 1.31 p.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you live from the Theology Central studio located right here in Abilene, Texas. Let me ask you a very serious question. You may think it's a little bit exaggerated. You may think, oh, come on, that's just crazy. But I really want you to think about it. Is it possible that Christianity is an existential threat to people's lives and to their families? Do you think Christianity presents an existential threat to the lives of different people. And when we talk about an existential threat, we're talking about something that is a threat to their existence. Do you think Christianity presents an existential threat to the lives of many people, to their to their whole way of living? Do you think it presents that? Now you may say, oh, come on, that's exaggerated. Christianity is not a threat to anyone. It may be a threat to sin. It may be a threat to the devil, but it's not a threat to people. But are you sure? Is it possible that many in our culture today could look at Christianity and go, whoa, I I think that's an existential threat to me and my family, and I think I need to fight against it. Now, the reason I'm asking that question is because of an article that was written that I, we're going to work through carefully that I think critiques something that I think could be perceived as an existential threat. The seven mountain mandate. The seven mountain mandate. Do you believe that the seven mountain mandate could be perceived by those who are not Christians as they would just see the seven mountain mandate as Christianity possibly? And they would say, if that is Christianity, then that is an existential threat. Do, are, are you familiar with this, what the seven mountain mandate is? Do you believe it presents an existential threat to people who are not believers? Now, the article begins this way. I quote, I'm wondering whether I should view Christianity not only as misguided, but as an existential threat to me and my family and actively fight against it. Now, this I'm quoting it, but the art, the person writing the article, they're quoting someone. And here's a little of the background. So again, let me read that quote again. I'm wondering whether I should view Christianity not only as misguided, but as an existential threat to me and my family and actively fight against it. Then the author of this article goes on to say, I saw this message pop up on a group chat I have with some high school friends. As a pastor and the only Christian in the group, I felt obliged to chime in. As I chatted with my friend of 20 years, he expressed his growing uneasiness with my faith. 
He had recently listened to a podcast about the seven mountain mandate, a call for Christians to throw themselves into a cultural crusade and to vote for political candidates who lead this charge. The militant tone of the podcast raised alarm bells for my friend for good reason. And our conversation led me to explore several questions. What should evangelicals make of the seven mountain mandate? How does it stand up biblically? And what can we learn from its faults? Now, this article can be found at thegospelcoalition.org, thegospelcoalition.org. It is entitled, How Evangelicals Lose Will Make All the Difference, a Critique of the Seven Mountain Mandate. It was published on July the 10th, 2023. Everyone should go look at the article. Everyone should read the article. I have mentioned the Seven Mountain Mandate here or there. I've never committed a lot of time and attention and effort to it. It is obviously something I reject outright, instead of really focusing on really the seven mountain mandate specifically, I typically attack kind of the underlying philosophy of it, right? Because you know my approach. My approach is as Christians, we are not of this world, right? My job as a Christian is not to try to take over the culture for Christ and force Christianity or impose Christianity upon the culture. What I'm supposed to do is preach Christ to the culture and then as they become saved, then disciple them, teaching them to obey. And they are obeying not because I'm forced Forcing it on them by law or by some cultural mandate, I am I am teaching them to obey, and they want to obey out of gratitude, out of love for the salvation which was provided by Christ and Christ alone. Radically different approaches to the world, but many Christians see the culture and they're like, "We have to take it over. We have to do this," and they almost want to impose Christianity upon them. So instead of really going after the seven mountain mandate by name or specifically, I try to dismantle the underlying philosophy to it. Is what I typically try to do. Some people get that, some people don't get that. But this wasn't an, an actual. I almost didn't even read the article because when I saw the headline, "How Evangelicals Lose Will Make All the Difference," I'm like, "Wow, what, what does that even mean?" Like, okay, whatever. Uh, but then I, I I I clicked on it, and then I saw a critique of the Seven Mountain Mandate, and I was like, "Ooh, we've got to read this." And then that opening quote. I'm wondering whether I should view Christianity not o- not only as misguided, but as an existential threat to me and my family and actively fight against it. Then they had me hooked. They had me hooked. And then this individual is like, hey, I was a part of this group chat with all of my friends from high school. And there was one of my friends saying, hey, I, 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 I see basically a threat from your faith. And why was the person talking this? Because I listened to a Seven Mountain Mandate podcast. They listen to a Seven Mountain Mandate podcast. And because of the militant tone, they were like, they're coming for me. This is a threat. So do they have reason? And, and, and even the, 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 the author of this article was even like, well, for good reason, they started feeling that way. And I think there is for good reason. Many do feel that way. And if you see what some, if you th- look at what some of the conservative political world is attempting to do, People are not looking at that as the 
and and I know you may not realize this, but many with on, on the let's say the 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 liberal side, the left side, the, the people who are not Christians, they perceive what many conservative Republicans are attempting to do in passing this law, passing this law, or getting this banned, or doing this. They are not seeing that as an existential threat from the Republican Party. They seem to be attaching over and over and over that that threat is coming from the church, from Christianity, because the Christianity has Christianity has so attached itself to a political party. So when they get upset at the political party, they get upset at the church, which they believe is guiding and supporting and driving that political party. So then they see us as the existential threat. That's the problem of attaching ourselves to politics. Now, people don't hate us for the cross. They hate us for this bill or this attempt by this politician to do this, to ban this, to do whatever they're trying to do. The article continues. Seven Mountain Mandate. The Seven Mountain Mandate or Seven Mountain Prophecy is a strategy for cultural engagement popularized, popular, made popular, if I can speak correctly, by Lance Wallnau, W-A-L-L-N-A-U, Wallnau, Wallnau, I don't know exactly how you say his last name, Lance, W-A-L-L-N-A-U, and of course, the name I know is Bill Johnson. All right? And this is in their 2013 book, Invading Babylon. All right. So if I'm mispronouncing Lance's name, I do apologize. Again, it is spelled W-A-L-L-N-A-U. And then Bill Johnson, the name of the book is Invading Babylon 2013. And again, it is the Seven Mountain Mandate or the Seven Mountain Prophecy is a strategy for cultural engagement. It was popularized by these two individuals in the book Invading Babylon. I have not read that book. I don't know if I want to read that book. Probably should read that book. Don't know if I want to read that book. So probably one of you should read that book and then send me very detailed notes, okay? But it's the 2013 book, Invading Babylon. Since its advent, the perspective has gained popularity, especially among charismatic and Pentecostal Christians. Proponents of the Seven Mountain Mandate call on Christians to retake seven spheres or mountains of cultural influence, religion, family, government, education, media, arts and entertainment, and business. So the idea is, hey, these are the seven mountains or spheres, right? And that Christians, we need to retake them. We need to retake religion, family, government, education, media, arts and entertainment, and business. Now, this article goes on to say, on one level, the spheres of influence, okay, one more time, on one level, the spheres of influence the Seven Mountain Mandate describes are a good summary of institutions that shape our culture. Okay, I got no problem with that. What shapes our culture? Religion, family, government, education, media, arts, entertainment, and business. I think that's, I think that's pretty fair. I think that's fair. Anyone with strong convictions. All right. Someone said that they will read it. All right. So that's great. They're going to read uh, the book Invading Babylon. They can, they can go to town. They can read it and read it and read it and have, 
I, I probably would end up having seizures. Okay, anything Bill Johnson is attached to is seizure-inducing seizure for me. But okay, all right, but maybe, maybe they, they're stronger than I am. All right, here we go. It says, anyone with strong convictions, whether conservatives, liberal, Muslim, Jewish, or secular, naturally wants his values to be adopted and heralded on all seven mountains. And I don't know if I agree with that. I believe I have strong convictions. I don't care about those convictions, as they say. I have no desire to have those values, those convictions, to be adopted and heralded on all seven mountains. I don't really care. Like, like I don't want to try to take over these fears. I want to offer my convictions. I want to offer my beliefs to people. To speak to people on a podcast behind a pulpit in any way that I can. Try to say, here is my perspective. Here's why I believe it to be true. Defend it. Maybe argue against other perspectives. But I want the individual to come to believe, obviously, in Christ and to believe the gospel and then to teach them obedience. I don't really care if I can get the rest of the, of the culture to adopt my way of thinking because from a theological standpoint, who cares? Who cares if the culture adopts the morality of Christianity? Because if they adopt the morality of Christianity without the Christ of Christianity, then the morality of Christianity is of no eternal value. I want the world to have, I want the world to have Christ, not morality. From Christ, then morality should arise. But I so saw, I, I don't know. Maybe most people want their values to be heralded and adopted by these seven spheres, these seven mountains. I just don't see why. Does it bother me that the arts and entertainment world may not have my values? Why do I? I don't care. They present their stories, their perspective. Great. I want those who have a different perspective to be able to present their stories in the entertainment world. I don't care who's dominating, who's taking over. I just want a free place where everyone can present their views and their perspectives. It says a Buddhist, for example, believes schools operate best when following Buddhist principles. Whatever your deep, deepest convictions, it's natural to think they're not only good for you, but good for everyone. But I, I, say, I may think my convictions are good, but I have no desire to force it on them. And I don't want a school to be operated by anyone's religious principles. I want a school to offer the best academics possible, right? Reading, math, history, science, arithmetic. I want them to give the basic disciplines, uh, logic, right? Re, uh, you know, uh, rational thinking, rational thought, how to research, how to know true ideas from false ideas. I, I don't really care about the, the, I don't want to impose an ideology. I want to, and I want people to receive the best education. Why is it that people always want to take over and impose an ideology? That, that's what I'm not a fan of. And I don't care which side is trying to do that. It says, but the seven ma uh, mountain mandate goes even further than this. And the devil is in the details. The perspective is ultimately built on a dual misunderstanding of scripture 
and of Christ's purpose in the world. Now, I am not shocked that it is built on a misunderstanding of scripture, considering Bill Johnson is anywhere near it. I do not know Lance, and again, I apologize for mispronouncing his name, while now, while new, well, I, however you pronounce his name. Uh, someone in chat just said, but if your eschatology told you that that's what us ushers in the reign of Christ, and only then, then does good things happen, the caring changes. Okay, now that is true. If I have an eschatology that says the only way to usher in the return of Christ, the only way to usher in the reign of Christ is we've got to dominate all of this, then Christ will come. Well, then, yeah, I guess my attitude would change. Then I would be like, we've got to do this to bring in Christ. But see, my eschatology doesn't believe that. So then I think these people are crazy. Now, I think their eschatology is crazy. I think their theology is crazy. I think their everything about this entire world is crazy. I mean, so much of this flows from the charismatic world, and you know how I feel about the charismatic world, right? I mean, I don't understand the charismatic I don't – look, I've, I've always looked at the charismatic world as what in the world is that? Like, from my earliest exposure to it, I'm like, this is insanity. This is craziness. This is – this is the most absurd, insane thing I have ever seen in my life. How could any rational person ever buy into any of it? I just think it's crazy. So, but I do, I mean, that's a very valid point. If your eschatology is basically saying we've got to do this in order to bring in the reign of Christ, well then, yeah, you're going to care far more than someone like me who believes the coming of Christ has nothing to do with what I'm, <laughs> me trying to take over the culture. Christ will come and he will take over the culture. But let's see where they go with this. Here we go. Advocates of the seven mountain mandate find their biblical warrant for retaking the culture in Revelation chapter 17, verses 8 through 10. Oh boy. Revelation chapter 17, 8 through 10. 10. I'm going to have to grab my Bible really quick. I'm going to turn to Revelation chapter 17. When you base anything on Revelation, I've got problems, but okay. Revelation chapter 17. All right. Revelation chapter 17, starting in verse 8. Okay. I'm, I'm, trying, I'm trying to just put my thinking caps on here. This, this just seems so problematic. All right. So, advocates of the seven mountain mandate find their biblical warrant for retaking the culture in Revelation 17, 8 through 10. Revelation 17, verse 8, the beast that thou sawest was and is not and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit and go into perdition. And they that dwell on the earth shall wonder whose names were not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world when they behold the beast that was and is not and yet is. And here is the mind which hath wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sitteth. And these are the seven kings. Uh, five are fallen and one is and the other is not yet come. And when he cometh, he must continue a short space. That's what they're going to base it off of? What in the world? Okay, all right. Let me, let me read this paragraph again. Advocates of the seven mountain mandate find their biblical warrant for retaking 
the culture in Revelation 17, 8 through 10, a passage that describes a scarlet beast with seven heads, which John says are seven mountains. The passage was intended as a picture within a book of pictures of the spiritual battle waged throughout through all history until Christ returns. It was intended to give Christians hope amid their suffering and cultural loss. Now, again, how you interpret Revelation 17, 8 through 10, let's just be honest with each other. There's probably who knows how many different interpretations. The seven mountains likely refer to the seven hills in ancient Rome when John wrote. The Roman government opposed Christ and his ways. However, one under, however, however one understands the beast, prostitute, kings, and mountains in this passage, the conquering warrior is always the crucified Christ, not a sword swinging church. Now that is very true. I do love that. In other words, we can get into all of the arguments and how to interpret all of this, but the one who conquers is not a sword-swinging church, but it is the crucified Christ who shows up in Revelation, is it Revelation 19? All right, is it Revelation 19? Uh, where does it start? Okay, yes, and you have the uh, the marriage of the Lamb is come and his wife has made herself ready and uh, to her was granted that that she should be arrayed in linen, Okay, so they say all of this. I fell at his feet to worship him. Then I saw the heavens open, verse 11, Revelation 19, 11, and behold, a white horse and he that sat upon him was called faithful and true and a right, and in righteousness he does judge and make war. He comes and he takes and he conquers. But it's Christ. It's him crucified. It's him coming back. It's not a sword swinging church. I I definitely agree with that. All right. Now, um, they go on to say, even if you've never heard of the seven mountain mandate and it's strange reading of Revelation, it can still be tempting to think Christ's kingdom grows by winning cultural power and influence. If this is where we place our hope, it'll be hard to stomach the losses. That's a good point. Even if you've never heard of the seven mountain mandate, and a lot of people haven't heard of the seven mountain mandate, but they definitely think like it. If you in your mind is think the way to get the kingdom of God to grow is by winning cultural power, by winning cultural influence, by winning the culture war, if that's where you place your hope, it's going to be hard to stomach when you start losing over and over and over and over and over and over again, because sooner or later you will lose. Even if you get temporary wins, even if you conquer certain elements of culture, it's going to, here's what's happened because you're con- conquering culture by political power, by, fo- by, by these different things. You're not changing anyone's heart. And sooner or later, those unregenerate hearts will rise up and say, Forget your Christianity. We're going to fight against it. You're an existential threat to me and my family. And then they're going to, and then the persecution we receive will not be persecution for preaching Christ. It'll be persecution for trying to take over the culture and drive everyone else out. Evangelicals increasingly run the risk of being seen as sore losers in the culture war. 
Our inability to let go, to relinquish positions of public prominence and power reveals a misplaced faith. Too often we've entangled Jesus' name with a political agenda as mainline Christians did when they made the church into a little more than a social club for liberal activism, right? Now, there was a, it's true. There was a time on the... There's a time on the liberal side where the church kind of become nothing more than a place for social and liberal political activism. Now you've got the conservative church who's turning into nothing more than a political party for more conservative social activism. But the bottom line is when you're trying to change the culture through this activism, through winning these culture wars, you're not changing anyone's heart. No one's truly becoming a Christ follower. They're only being forced to, to adhere, to conform to some level of morality. But sooner or later, the heart will be like, no, I don't want that. I don't want that. And they will rise up and fight and they will throw off your shackles. They will throw off your restraint. So then what were you winning? That's to me the problem. I pointed my friend to the words of Christ. All right, now this is back to the friend who started feeling like Christianity has become an existential threat. And he says, I pointed my friend to the words, uh, Jesus' words to Pilate. To Pilate. Remember when uh, Jesus was speaking to Pilate? And I quote, this is from John 18, 36. My kingdom is not of this world. John 18, 36. I told him that at his arrest, Jesus rebuked Peter for striking with a sword. That led to fruitful conversation, but it also led me to ask, what does faithful witness look like as evangelicals, or say, what does faithful witness look like as evangelicals lose the culture? As we lose the culture, what, what, what will a faithful witness look like as a Christian? Now, many Christians will believe that we're currently winning the culture, where we're going to win the culture war. And of course, now they're hinging all of their hopes, all of their aspirations on either Trump or DeSantis, that they're the ones who are going to usher in. They're going to do it. We're going to take over. Oh, even even if you win those political battles, it will be absolutely detrimental and destructive to Christianity. Because then it's going to, the lost world will see that as basically Christianity, once again, trying to regain political power to force an agenda upon those who are unregenerate. And it will only hurt Christianity. I don't care how much, how many culture battles you win. I don't care how many political battles you win. We've so attached ourselves to that within the evangelical church that it will only undermine Christianity. It will only undermine the church. It will only undermine the message of the gospel. Jesus tells his followers to take up their crosses, not their crowns. Historically, the church has thrived during some of its bleakest winters of cultural power. We can see modern examples of this in Iran or China. Though our faith may be increasingly marginalized and devalued in the West, losing cultural battles with grace, dignity, and love can persuasively display Christ's cruciform beauty. Conversely, there's nothing persuasive about chasing the perks of power. 
Peter wrote his first letter to Christians facing intense persecution. It's a treatise on how to suffer faithfully, a lost art and a world taking its cue from social media influencers. Peter cautions the, 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 the believers, right? That though it's, though it's worthy and beautiful to suffer for faith, they should be careful never to suffer as criminals or meddlers. First Peter chapter four, verse 15. Suffering because you're harmful, harmful or obnoxious isn't Christian faithfulness. Worse, desperately clutching for the instruments of power or elbowing to get a seat at the table sacrifices Christ's cause to chaos. Now, I agree with all of that. We, we should learn to lose with grace. We should, and we, and not only look, to me, it's not losing. Like, I, I, that's, that's the thing with me. I don't see it as losing. The culture turns more and more away from Christ. So what? I don't care. It doesn't have any impact on me because I'm not worried about the cultural trend or the cult cultural temperature. You, I, you should be focused on individual human beings creating the image of God who need the gospel, who need salvation. Now, once they become saved, then you set them down and then you disciple them by teaching them to obey all the things which Christ has taught. Now, obviously, you teach them that this is what we are to pursue. We're going to fall short. That's why we are saved by an imputed righteousness. But you teach them that. You teach them this is what's important now. This is what you live for. Now, I do believe if more and more people come to faith in Christ, there will be a cultural shift. There will be a cultural change. You will see some of those changes culturally, but it's only because the people are changing, not because they're trying to impose it. I'll try to, I'll try to break it down in a simple way. I'll try to break it down in a simple way. Let's say, that a someone opens a strip club in your neighborhood and the Christians are offended by it, horrified by it. We want that strip club out of our neighborhood. So they try to use every political power, everything that they can to try to win. Let's say even if they win temporarily, look, if you don't change the hearts of the people in the neighborhood and if more people there want the strip club, you're going to lose no matter what. And even if you win the battle of not having the strip club, what did you gain? No one came to Christ. No one became a Christian. All you want is a temporary restraining of something that you don't like. But here's the thing. If people in your neighborhood were being evangelized and becoming Christians and being discipled, probably over time. And if that was happening throughout the city, probably, slowly, slowly but surely, a strip club probably wouldn't be profitable because I would assume more and more people would stop going as they try to live out their Christian faith in a meaningful way. You change the culture without fighting a culture war. It, it's that simple. But no, we, we've got to learn how to lose and how to, to handle this stuff, right? And again, I don't even like the idea of losing. Now they go on to say, this doesn't mean Christian, uh, this doesn't mean Christian political savvy is thrown aside while we lie down and float away with the cultural tide. I say, but to me, I don't, I don't need political savvy. I don't care about the politics. My, my, our, our job is the Great Commission. Our job is to preach, pray, fast, disciple. That's what we're called to do. 
It does mean American evangelicals have a golden opportunity, even in years when it seems the sun is setting on our influence, to prove our hope is vested beyond the material and visible. We can chart for the next generation a trail of faithfulness that avoids bitter and reclusive cultural withdrawal on the one hand and vengeful scorched earth behavior on the other. Now, I do believe that within Christianity, sometimes you have these two strong philosophies, completely withdraw, withdraw and get away from everything. Just let's just basically, you know, leave the culture behind. And the other is this scorched earth. Basically, it looks like a a Trump, you know, truth social post, a Trump Twitter feed where he just you just bash and call people names and attack and attack and attack and fight and fight and fight and fight. And you and you go with a, a more militant concept. Both concepts, I believe, are wrong. Losing well has to do with attitude. We soften our tone, but don't we don't soften our convictions. We pursue what is excellent and praiseworthy because we care about what is good, not because we're always right and have to win. We find ways like Daniel to bless people and institutions that are riddled with problems. As faithful evangelicals, we advocate for God's ways and encourage our neighbors to follow them while while leaving the results to God. And I say, once again, I disagree. I don't want to encourage my neighbor to follow God's ways. I want to encourage my neighbor to come to God in faith, then follow his way. The following comes after the coming to Christ. Church always seems to get this wrong. I don't care about trying to get non-believers to follow the ways of God. You, they need to come to God by faith. Then as they live out their Christian life, they will then pursue to the best of their ability with failures and shortcomings, the ways of God. Right? We may not ascend the seven mountains of cultural influence, but as we continue to promote our values, we can remember that one of our cardinal virtues is love. Jesus suffered for us when we were still his enemies. For his sake, let's love our enemies with grace, even if we suffer because of them. That is from the gospelcoalition.org called How Evangelicals Lose Will Make All the Difference, a critique of the Seven Mountain Mandate, published July the 10th, 2023, by Justin N. P-O-Y-T-H-R-E-S-S. P-O-Y-T-H-R-E-S-S. Go to thegospelcoalition.org. Look for the article today. It's in the Bible and theology section. Again, how evangelicals lose will make all the differences. Read it for yourself. Share it with others. Talk about it. Because as we move forward, and we're fast approaching before we know it, 2024. And hold on tight. Because it's going to be a bumpy ride. It's going to be crazy. It's going to be politics, wall to wall, fighting and arguing. And this cultural war, cultural war that we're in, this culture war that we're in right now, this war for the culture that Christianity is so engaged in right now is only going to get worse. And more and more churches are going to become more political and enlist themselves into the culture war. And if you want to avoid that, you're going to kind of look around going, what happened to my church? What happened to my Christianity? Because it's not what I thought it was.
We are not of this world. This is not our home. God's kingdom is not of this world. He tells us to go teach, baptize, and then teach to obey. The teach to obey is after evangelism and after baptism. And then we teach to obey. Our, our, our commission is not to take over the culture. Our commission is not to do that. Our commission is to preach Christ, to live out our lives to the best of our abilities with humility, brokenness. We're called to love our enemy, turn the other cheek, resist not evil. We live our lives here, but we're citizens of heaven. And then, yes, I do believe a time will come. Well, Christ will come and return. And then he will make the nation submit. He will then establish his reign. Now, but even if you reject a thousand year reign where Christ literally returns and sets up a kingdom in, in Jerusalem, even if you reject that, you can't believe that we somehow basically have to take over culture for Christ. Hey, we're going to take it over for you. Then you can just come in and reign. That's just no. Even, even if you try to use Revelation, chapter 19 shows it's Christ who's going to come back and do so. He doesn't come back going, okay, guys, I've done, you, you've taken it all over now, then let me step in. There's no way to read Revelation that way. The seven mountain mandate. I think it's extremely influential because of the political hijacking of the American church. And I believe the American church has been politically hijacked because the American church looked at culture and realized we're losing our influence. The culture is moving away from Christianity faster than you can say it. The culture is becoming more secular minded, less spiritually minded, rejecting Christianity, rejecting biblical Christianity, becoming much thinking in ways that are absolutely different. And if they are spiritual, they're embracing a spirituality that's 100% opposed to Christianity. So as you look at the culture moving further and further away, the church panics and is like, what are we going to do? How do we fight this cultural shift? And then we decide to fight the cultural shift by fighting culture wars. What the culture does doesn't move me. I may agree. I may disagree with what they do. It's irrelevant. I just want the freedom to preach the biblical gospel, to preach scripture. And I may preach against what the culture is doing. I may preach. Well, I'm just going to preach what the scriptures say. Whether it agrees or disagrees with culture is really irrelevant. My job is not to fight the culture. My job is to present Christ to those within the culture. Those within the culture who become Christians, then they are changed. As they are changed their way of thinking and try to live out their Christian life, they're going to live a way that's different from the culture from which they were saved from. Is it going to be perfectly different? No, but there will be differences. Different pursuits, hopefully different desires, hopefully different priorities. Trying to avoid maybe that which they... they once indulged in. Now, the book on the Seven Mountain Mandate, I guess the book that made it popular, all right, is uh, by Lance Walnut, W A L L 
and AU, I'm going to get 900 emails going, you don't even know the guy's name. I look, I'm admitting, I look, I know the seven mountain mandate. I've explained, I haven't spent my time focusing on the seven mountain mandate. I've gone at the underlying philosophy below it. Okay. All right. But the book is was popularized by Lance Wall now, W-A-L-L-N-A-U, Bill Johnson. Again, and anything written by Bill Johnson is just, I'm, I'm sorry. Straight up, everything from Bethel, heretical, right? Um, in their 2013 book, Invading Babylon. Invading Babylon. All right. And if you click on it, you can get a copy of the book for $9.99. Uh, $9.99. And, uh, or you can get a paperback for fourteen ninety nine, and yeah, I, I could read a little bit about the book, but I don't really want to even read about the book. But by, it's one hundred and sixty four pages; it's not even that long. Oh man, look at the other books that go along with it. <laughs> the the two books under that are recommended, they said frequently bought together. The two books under. Um, uh, invading Babylon, the Seven Mountain Mandate. The two books underneath it both have do- uh, deal with Donald Trump. <laughs> Does that tell you anything? Does that tell you anything? Oh man, that tells you everything you need to know. All right, but there, there's a lot of books about the Seven Mountain Mandate right underneath here. There's a lot. Yeah. Okay. There's a lot of books about the Seven Mountain Mandate. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a big deal, and it's probably again I think it's more prominent in the event uh, the charismatic Pentecostal circles. But the thinking, look, just when a when a when an idea, when a philosophy, when an ideology, when a theology becomes prominent in one area of Christianity. That idea seeps over to other areas of Christianity. It just may not use the same name, but the concept is there. So you may have people who've never been to a charismatic church, maybe not even know what the seven mountain mandate is, but listen to them talk and you'll be like, that's straight up seven mountain mandate ideology. And it's sad that people won't realize what they're being influenced by. All right. You can email me your thoughts, newsifyahoo.com. Newsif at yahoo.com. That's newsif at yahoo.com. Please avoid the seven mountain mandate ideology. Please think differently about the culture war. And let's get back to being the church and caring about the Great Commission, not winning an election or a culture war. Thanks for listening. God bless.